This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Since 2002, our mission has been to protect part of the media landscape for focused conversation about the art and science and history of peacemaking. Today, we'll be presenting some highlights from our shows produced in the 2019 season, beginning with Suzanne Kreider's conversation with Justin Reamer Thamert, director of the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice. He offered up some ideas about how to bring closer together opposing sides in the debate over immigration in the U.S. and in other countries around the world. Standing up, that is hard. See, I'm from a generation. I was in the seventh grade when Martin Luther King was assassinated, and then a few months later, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And so I learned people who speak up and stand up get shot. And I don't want to say I don't stand up for things, but I'm more nervous about that. What would you say to our listeners who are nervous about standing up? There is an inherent risk to standing up. And I don't think that in my personal journey, that is something that I want to paralyze me. So I can understand that there are certainly risks that people have faced in this country and around the world for standing up. And... Courageous resistance is something that we just learn step by step. You know, standing up when we see a very small act can lead us to standing up when we see something bigger happen. And especially at this moment in time when we're seeing across the globe so much division and so much xenophobia, the cost of not standing up will end up being something that is much more problematic than being willing to take the risk that it bears on our life. A friend of mine was recently talking to me about sacred activism and sacred um, activism being something that is tying in the understanding, similar to liberation theology, that our lives and our spiritual journey are intertwined. So while I may aspire towards letting go of ego and moving um, into higher connection with source energy, I also am living in the physical plane and want to acknowledge that my neighbors who don't have the same privileges that I do or that have been oppressed historically, part of my spiritual journey is learning how to extend that liberation onto others and stand with others who are struggling for liberation. We hear a narrative of people who are rapists and murderers and terrorists, and that is not the reality. So I think first knowing the facts is helpful. Second, understanding the stories. I mean, we are seeing thousands of Central American migrants coming to the United States, and they're largely people under five feet tall, and they're very skinny, and they are oftentimes malnourished because of how painful and problematic the journey was for them to to bring their children to this country. So just looking at someone like that They don't pose a threat to us. And I think that if those people are people of faith, recognizing that our faith calls us to be kind and extend generosity and hospitality to our neighbors, and particularly to people that we don't know, the people that might be called the stranger in some traditions. In the same program, Suzanne talked with Bawa Jane, 
the Secretary General of the Millennium World Peace Summit of Religious and Spiritual Leaders that opened at the United Nations in August 2000. Mr. Jane's been a key figure in cooperative interfaith efforts to address many of the planet's ills, and lately he's been a leader at the Center for Responsible Leadership. He talked with Suzanne about that work to inspire leaders in both spiritual and political realms to step up and uphold nonviolent principles as they lead, principles that we can all apply to resolving conflicts with others. Our first principle is to go and try and engage in a dialogue. Uh, you just can't condemn or demonize anybody because of what they're doing. All we can do is start to engage with them. And we are doing this because we know there is need for it. There is violence, there is conflict, there is tension. So we promote this. But now what we are trying to promote is responsible leadership. Because part of responsible leadership is making decisions based on the future, not the present. Making decisions based on conviction, not convenience. Sometimes it might be convenient, you know, if, some, if you get angry, like to hit somebody. That, that is convenient. But is that, is that what you really should be doing? Is that going to help resolve it? It will have consequences. Any of our actions have consequences. And the third part of our principles of responsible leadership is, uh, is it constructive or destructive? So here, again, with the principles of nonviolence, if you've engaged in a violent situation, then that is destruction. If the other person is really struggling or they're really being sincere, well, what do I do next? Uh, be understanding, have some compassion. And oftentimes, uh, you know, don't volunteer and try and pronounce judgments. Just listen, listen. Don't jump to a conclusion or judgment. Keep engaging, keep the conversation going. Bawa Jain and before him Justin Reamer Thamert in our program called Immigration Compassion and a Call for Peace Leaders. Hear the whole show in our February 2019 episode online at peacetalksradio.com. Where also our October 29 episode can be found. It was called Facing Our Fears, What's Real and What's Imagined. Featuring our host Megan Kamrick talking with former Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano. How are we making mistakes in evaluating true threats? I think the biggest mistake is to kind of focus only on the southwest border as if that is a danger to the safety and security of the American people. What are the biggest threats that you see right now to Homeland Security? I would say three. One of those three is definitely the rise of domestic terrorism and mass gun violence. It is high time to enact some gun safety measures at the federal level, universal background checks. I think we ought to reconsider the ban on assault weapons. Two other risks, cybersecurity, huge complicated, has evolved a great deal. You know, when I started as secretary, spent maybe 10% of my time on cybersecurity. By the time I left, it was a good 40% of my time. And now we've seen ransomware attacks, denial of service attacks, different kinds of hacking, the theft of personal information, and uh, we've seen an attack on our democracy itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the 2016 election and with no confidence that that has been adequately dealt with or that um, that infiltration uh, of our electoral process by the Russians is not still continuing. I think uh, the intelligence community has concluded and warned us that it is continuing. 
but we have no national plan on how to deal with it. And the third risk I would identify are the risks associated with global warming. We are seeing a, a perceptible increase in uh, migration from south to north across the planet. And we're, we are having the creation of so-called climate refugees, um, people leaving their homelands because of extreme drought that's destroyed the agricultural economy. And we have areas of the world where, due to global warming, as I mentioned, uh, the local economies have been affected and destroyed, leaving a population of primarily young men growing up hopeless, uh, helpless, and ripe for terrorist recruitment. In addition to Janet Napolitano, Megan Kamrick also talked with sociologist and author Barry Glasner, who wrote The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. I think that there have been fears around for a long time, but right now what's going on is that it's very profitable for a lot of different uh, organizations and, in, and individuals to be promoting fears and scares. As a result of that partly and in response to that partly, anxiety is the number one uh, psychological disorder in the U.S. at this point. Can you give us some examples of that? Probably the biggest perpetrator is local TV news. Even though crime rates are down in most of the nation, there are many places at near record lows. Anybody who watches local TV news very much is going to think that their communities are crime-ridden. Politicians routinely run on fear of crime and that if you don't vote for them, uh, you're going to be even even greater danger than you are now. Local TV news stations don't often hear enough from people uh, saying, you know, I don't want my, my scare of the evening. I want to know what's really going on in my community. When we talk about low probability dangers, uh, sometimes what we're doing is avoiding ones that uh, we either feel we can't confront emotionally or as a society or that we just don't think we know what to do about. So a great example that comes up unfortunately, very often, is when there's been a mass shooting, then there's a lot of talk about things like video games and movies. The research is very clear. If they have any impact, it's very small. When what we should be talking about is unambiguous. It's guns and what we do about it. You can hear more from Barry Glasner, Janet Napolitano, and other guests on our show, Facing Our Fears, at peacetalksradio.com. It's our October 2019 episode. Each year, 2019 certainly, brings stories of stalemated political divisiveness. Our Sarah Holtz took us inside a 400-year-old way of dealing with local politics called Town Meeting, an assembly of citizens that convene, deliberate, and make decisions together generally once a year. Sarah's guests included Susan Clark, who co-wrote a book called Slow Democracy, about this type of local decision-making in conflict resolution. Susan Clark is also the town moderator of Middlesex, Vermont. People might think that town meeting is a relic. They might think that's this old-fashioned thing, uh, and we don't need that anymore. We need to be careful because local control isn't really old-fashioned. It's, it's really in keeping with our postmodern democratic 
sensibilities. I mean, our expectations um, as citizens have dramatically changed since the internet. And we are not, um, as citizens, more likely to um, sort of, you know, look to the leaders and, you know, as you know, sort of that kind of 1950s command and control model where, you know, just tell us what to do and you're the experts. And that's not us. That's not us as Americans anymore. Um, we are much more, and millennials and anyone who's grew up with the internet is going to, you know, I, I've seen it happen at meetings that, you know, an expert will stand up in the front and say something and somebody else will hold up their phone and they say, that's not what I just found out, you know, and challenge people that way. And so a model of, of uh, governance that is much more uh, not like a hierarchical top-down process and more like a wiki, you know, where we're really bringing in the wisdom and energy of people who are interested and engaged and living it um, is much more in keeping with our with today's system. And that is what a town meeting is. Um, you know, for all of its old-fashioned apple pie flannel shirt, you know, imagery that you might have, um, this is folks coming together um, to put their put their best minds together and, and really make things happen. Um, so it's a, a very modern model, and it's being used as a model in um, deliberative democracy across the world now. Are there any other examples around the world um, that kind of mirror the town meeting process? Yeah, we are seeing, I mean, participatory budgeting has gone on, um, you know, in Brazil since the 80s, and it's, you know, swept the world. The United Nations has named it a good governance practice, and it is very much like a town meeting. There's also, um, there's the something called the 21st century town meeting is, is what it was called, America Speaks, um, which isn't um, happening now, but that's the process that um, created what is now where um, the World Trade Centers are, and, you know, they needed to when the World Trade Centers came down, they needed, what, what are we going to put here in their place? And they drew together people from all across the uh, socioeconomic and demographic spectrum of New York to get people's uh, opinions. And it was um, a, a model that was very much like a town meeting. So, so a lot of these lessons about inclusion, um, about deliberation, and in particular, I think about how to empower people meaningfully um, are uh, lessons we can draw from town meeting. I'd like to ask you kind of a broad strokes question that um, Frank Bryan poses in his book, um, which is, how does town meeting contribute to civic capability? Yeah, I think there are a number of ways. Um, one of them is um, this sense of understanding that we are part of a community and really seeing the impact. When you attend and participate, you can actually you know, feel you, the thread that you are in that tapestry. You can feel the tugs um, and, and you can see how you're enmeshed. And we know from uh, actually really interesting research um, uh, now on deliberation that people are changed by an empowered deliberation. We see it in um, jury duty research, for example. When I have been involved in a deliberation where I know that my decision is binding, you know, I'm not just giving my advice to some board somewhere. I'm not just sounding off. We are making binding decisions um, at the end of our meetings about, you know, is this is this the budget we want for this year? Yes or no? All those in favor say aye. In terms of our democracy today in the United States, you know, many people have argued that it's at risk and they wonder what we can do from the top down to fix it. My argument would be, we need to do this from the bottom up. We need to do this with our neighbors together. This is the roots, this is the oxygen of our democracy, are these local decision-making processes on things where we can see neighbor to neighbor what impact uh, we play in that democracy. 
Middlesex, Vermont town moderator Susan Clark, author of Slow Democracy, talking there with Sarah Holtz about the participatory democracy model that's very much still alive in New England at town meeting. Several more sharp panelists contributed to that episode, November 2019's episode of Peace Talks Radio. And we're hearing highlights from our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution on today's special program. I'm Paul Ingalls. Glad you're listening. The best town meeting moderators are likely trained mediators. For our January 2019 episode, our Suzanne Kreider took a 40-hour mediation course in Albuquerque, along with 21 others, who hope to improve their communication skills and to someday mediate professionally. Suzanne talked with one of the students, Liliana Urban, whom we'll hear from shortly, but first, part of Suzanne's conversation with Ann Leitze, a professional mediator and the course instructor, about what each of us can do during conflict to make peace rather than simply conclude that the other person is just wrong. Suzanne asked Ann Leitze why she teaches mediation. I teach because um, I watch these skills change people's lives. I feel like I'm like imparting magic. I've had people come back and say that um, they uh, talk to their teenagers differently. I had a woman say that she really thinks that she these skills prevented her child from committing suicide. I've had another woman who's the director of a very large organization say that she really just goes about managing and leading people very differently than she did before. Even when you feel like you're in the right, let's say in terms of justice, mm-hmm. and you believe they're in the wrong, mm-hmm. how do you keep listening to them and not say, hey, you're wrong? Mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing we do at the mediation table, where we really, it's our job to come with a mindset of curiosity rather than conclusion. So I come and try to really understand. I hear that you really believe X, and I really believe Y. Can you tell me why you believe X and why you believe that so strongly? And I think what we really try to bring is that everybody is right from how they see the world. They, so I'm not looking for the right. I'm looking for your right and the other person's right. Define positions versus interests. That's something mediators listen for, positions versus interests. So this is a huge topic, and it's a complex topic. It's not easy for most people to understand. But if you think about it, a position is the, it's a solution, it's a demand, and it's the what someone wants. So I want you to take your Christmas decorations down uh, the 1st of January. That's a a position. And in conflict resolution, we don't pay a lot of um, attention to positions because that may not really be what's at the heart of the conflict. Why is it important to you that I take my Christmas decorations down is what we're really looking for. So the position is the what, the interest is the why that position is important. And it takes a lot of skill and practice to move from understanding what someone's position is to having them feel comfortable saying and identifying what their interests are. It's a very, it's a big complex topic. My name is Liliana Urban. I'm a lawyer back home in Hungary. I'm a junior associate and I've just finished the three years practice and I'm facing to the bar exam very soon. What's the most important thing you've learned so far from class about mediation or about people's conflicts? Um, people's conflicts has a main core 
and it's very very interesting to get in there so it's very special like peeling the onion this is the expression what we use as a mediator and it's very interesting because as a lawyer we stay on surface with this we are we are we have different skills to find out the problem because we are looking at the acts but here you see something but in, in underneath there are so many questions and this is really really interesting that like really you have to use really soft skills to get in there for our listeners what would you recommend for using those soft skills to get inside or peel the onion i think you should never stuck to the problem like what you see first because if you just see that this is a problem this not true because maybe under that or next to this there is something else and you have to let the parties tell you what they need so you have to wait you have to really listen carefully because maybe they say just one word and it's so important and you have to follow this route like where does it come from why she or he said that because maybe it's not about that problem it's something else and there is a connection what do you feel is the hardest part about mediating i think um someone is getting too emotional and you and they just can't handle this emotion and it's just going really really far away from from the real real problem or because just they are focusing something about something but they don't try to understand why they feeling that it just the emotional part and they just stuck there with one feeling um because i think every situation you have to use your brain and your heart as well but sometimes it, the heart is too strong and this is really difficult that's mediation course student Liliana Urban and course instructor Ann Leitze talking with our Suzanne Kreider about mediation training. Much more from those two and others who took the course in our episode called Learning Mediation. You can read about it, hear it all, find other links on the topic at peacetalksradio.com. Just look for our January 2019 program. Next up, part of my conversation with Sarah Dosa, who co-directed the Netflix film Tricky Dick and the Man in Black. In the late 1960s and early 70s, the divisions in the United States over the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement brought the youth of America in conflict with long-standing social and political norms. The Richard Nixon administration sought to ingratiate itself to both the youth culture and the Deep South by trying to recruit the favor of music star Johnny Cash. Cash, nicknamed, of course, the Man in Black, was invited to perform at the Nixon White House in April 1970. Nixon wanted Cash to play stereotypical country favorites, some of which he didn't even write. But Cash's social consciousness was being lit by some of the anti-establishment music performers of the day. So Cash passed on the request to play Merle Haggard's Ogie from Muskogee and instead gave President Nixon's invited guests something to think about when he slipped in a song that he'd just written called What is Truth? You could ask a lot of questions about war and Drugs and youth, this and that. Well, we took our show to Long Ben Air Force Base near Saigon, Vietnam. 
We did shows for the men over there, as many as we could for the time that we had. Somebody said, that makes you a hawk. You went to Vietnam. No, but after you watched the wounded come in in the helicopters, if you're a dove, you might come away a, a dove with claws. All of a sudden, then John got very quiet. We were in trouble. We're waiting with these solemn looks on our faces. What's going on? Of course, um, in order to say something to somebody that might be meaningful, you gotta kinda get them on your side. So I had these words, a poem that I wrote to the youth of America. And the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? A little boy of three sitting on the floor looks up and says, Daddy, what is war? Son, that's when people fight and die. Little boy of three says, Daddy, why? Young man of 17 in Sunday school being taught the golden rule. And by the time another year's gone around, maybe his turn to lay his life down. Can you blame the voice of youth for asking, what is truth? I saw the squirming in Nixon's chair when Johnny was singing, What is Truth? Nixon was smart enough and attentive enough to be uncomfortable. Young man sitting on the witness stand, man with a book says, raise your hand. Repeat after me, I solemnly swear. Judge looked down at his long hair. And although the young man solemnly swore, nobody seemed to hear anymore. And it didn't really matter if the truth was there. It was the cut of his clothes and the length of his hair. And the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? Young girl dancing to the latest beat, found new ways to move her feet. Young man speaking in the city square, trying to tell somebody that he cares. Yeah, the ones that you're calling wild, gonna be the leaders in a little while. This old world's waking to a newborn day, and I solemnly swear that it'll be their way. We better help that voice of youth find what is truth. And the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? I was in tears, you know, I mean, it's, and, 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 and even though, you know, we're sort of revealing the end of the film here, I, I, I wouldn't discourage anybody from watching it because it's a beautifully done documentary. Sarah Dosa, uh, what do we know about the reaction to Johnny Cash performing What is True uh, there in the White House? So uh, there were no cameras actually on Nixon at the time. So uh, all we have are, are the testimonies of the people in the room. And in the research that we did, um, Cash's family uh, certainly seemed to say that they saw, I, I think my favorite interview was actually with Joanne Cash, Johnny's sister. Uh, she said she saw Nixon squirm in his chair. Um, I think that everyone would agree that Nixon was made nervous by the political um, tones that this song has. But there's a power in the, in the poetry and in the subtleties um, and in Cash's appeal uh, 
to this to truth, to this higher notion um, of goodness and right that um, I think sent shockwaves <laughs> through through the White House and certainly made Nixon, you know, in, in the words of his sister, made Nixon squirm. Well, it's certainly a, a perfect example of like what Bob Dylan did very well and many other folk singers is that you don't necessarily call out the issue in a specific way, but you put it in the form of a question and then you try to legitimize the asking of the question. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a perfect example of a song that does that. And at the time, uh, the Nixon White House and the conservative movement was basically trying to delegitimize uh, the quote long hair hippie freaks uh, from even asking the questions mm -hmm. uh, and I, I find that that's what's so powerful about it is that it's a question song that you know allows for uh, the quote opposition uh, the resistance to be humanized enough to make the question valid mm -hmm. yeah that, that's that's a great way of putting it Film director Sarah Dosa says the White House performance was a bit of an ideological turning point for Johnny Cash. Not so much for Richard Nixon, who escalated the war in Vietnam and the war on protesters at home. The four Kent State student killings, in fact, by National Guardsmen, happened just shortly after the Johnny Cash White House show. You can look for the film Tricky Dick and the Man in Black online. Hear much more about it in our April 2019 episode at peacetalksradio.com. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. It's another in an annual series of shows that presents highlights from a single season of our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today's program samples come from our 2019 season. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. And when you remember 2019, you'll recall that the so-called Me Too movement that sought to expose unwanted sexual assault was still making headlines. We collaborated with Stephanie Lepp, producer of a podcast called Reckonings, who'd reported on a case involving a female victim of an unwanted sexual advance by a fellow male student at their college, and how the two of them actually found a way to work publicly together to use their story to inform others about proper consent for sexual encounters. For the podcast, the woman took the name Anwan, the man Samir, to protect their identities while talking to Stephanie. The assault at first went unreported, and the two principals, by coincidence, wound up connected to on-campus sexual awareness campaigns, and they wound up being at the same event at the same time. So here we play a part of the Reckonings podcast, telling when the two recognized each other at that event. Anwan speaks first. It was, I mean, unrehearsed. I walked up to the mic and started speaking, pretty much. And I kind of went through the story a little bit and more just like the motions afterwards, but I didn't say his name and he was sitting in the audience right in front of me. I was actually sitting about 10 feet away from her. I tried really hard to keep myself together. Um, I couldn't look her in the eye, but I felt like such a hypocrite. <laughs> but this is uh, supposed to be a space that's meant for survivors and allies. I wanted to call him out. I really wanted to call him out. But I wanted him to be able to come forward on his own. I wanted him to be able to be standing up there with me and speaking the story with me and be able to have the story be exposed in a way that didn't just 
write us into the categories of like angelic, pure survivor, horrible, evil, assaulter, those things that make somebody assault, those are things that we can overcome if we learn about them and people can acknowledge that they've done something wrong and grow from it and learn from it and be better people. And I think I actually said, like, if this person comes forward and tells his story, I hope that you'll listen to him. I wanted to tell my story more. I wanted to tell people like I started feeling this this massive like need to have other people know and to have other people know that it was him that did it. And then I went to Frank. Now, Frank was the director of student conduct at the college. He suggested a restorative justice process that brought Anwan and Samir together to tell their stories to each other. Samir had a real epiphany through the challenging but truth-based process, realizing that what he'd considered an awkward dating hookup was actually a case of sexual assault, in fact, attempted rape. Samir apologized. He got a conduct reprimand, a strike on his academic record. He outed himself under his real name in an article in a university magazine, and he's worked to promote consent training on campus since. He and Anwan have told their story together to others to make tangible the conversation about consent. Samir talks openly and often with his fellow students about consent. Uh, like I'll ask like one question and it'll really throw them off. I'm like, so like you enjoyed yourself? Like, yeah. Like, did she enjoy herself? It's like, of course she did. I'm like, how do you know? It's like, well, she did, uh, she did this, this, this. Like, did you ask her? And they're like, no, why would I do that? I'm like, because it's good to communicate. If I'm really comfortable with the friends, like I, I tell them to talk to their partners about introducing different methods of communication while participating in sexual acts so that their partners know that they feel comfortable. Like for example, um, having a safe word to stop sexual, uh, sexual play. Even if it's not super intense, sometimes things happen. Sometimes people get triggered. Sometimes people just want to stop and they want to be able to communicate that effectively, use a safe word. Another great one that I've been told was like the stoplight system, where like if one person doesn't like, isn't opposed to what's happening, but wants things to ease up a little bit, they say yellow. And that is a sign for their other partner to be like, okay, keep doing what you're doing, but ease up a little bit. Versus red is like full stop. Like I need you to stop doing what you're doing. I'm not about that. And it's just these different really easy, like very easy to implement methods of communication that allow one for better actual sex when you have it, and then two, prevent a lot of potential pain. Always some good practical tips there. Yeah, you often hear this whole thing about, you know, like, well, isn't it awkward to, you know, bring it up while you're, it's like, well, what's more awkward, finding out afterwards that you really didn't make them feel good? Or, or actually knowing the, the entire way because you're engaged with them. And he, he makes a great point. It actually does make for better sex when you have it, as well as, yes, prevent a lot of potential pain. Now, one of the very interesting objections to the restorative justice model that you bring up uh, in the program on reckonings is whether restorative justice seems to let a perpetrator off easy. Right. I liked Anwan's response to that and uh, Samir's comments too. So let's hear that. Restorative justice is not lenient. Uh, you're forced to take a look at your innermost darkness 
Um, and I think that's one of the most difficult things a person can do is to confront their own shadow and come face to face with themselves. Every time that I've wanted to punish myself beyond all belief, she always said, no, I want you to do better. Don't just take the easy route and lock yourself up or get yourself kicked off campus because that's not going to help anybody. Because she never, she never wanted to punish me. She wanted me to learn. She wanted me to grow. She wanted me to prevent this from ever happening. I, I didn't want to take away his agency because that would just be reversing the roles. I would say what's important to me in the restorative justice process is that both people are given a space where they are empowered to make things better. You can really see that both people are human and both people are more than their actions and can grow. You've heard from Anwan and Samir, pseudonyms for the two college students who told their story about sexual assault to Stephanie Lepp for her podcast Reckonings. You can hear our full episode on their story at peacetalksradio.com. Look for our July 2019 episode page. And there's a link there to Stephanie's original powerful podcast episode, too. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. As we review our 2019 season of programs, next up is an excerpt from our episode about peacemaking in the LGBTQ community. Coming out about sexual orientation can sometimes bring on conflict with family, friends, and the larger society in which we live. Our correspondent for this show, Sarah Holtz, spoke with three individuals who came out about their sexual orientation and gender identity and found their own personal peace, and then went on to advocate for peace and justice within and outside their communities. Here, Sarah talks with Sally Michelle Jackson, who came out as a woman at the age of 58 and is now a New Orleans-based transgender advocate and a radio host, too. And how did you become an advocate? Uh, by accident. It really was. It was a transgender suicide prevention site and forums. And I had gone on the forums to get some information. I started reading the stuff with people that were basically saying goodbye and watched what the moderators were trying to do to help them. And one night, uh, this is how I actually became an advocate. One night. A young man on uh, Vancouver Island, not in Vancouver, but on Vancouver Island. So he was up in the middle of the night for us. He was talking, basically saying his goodbyes to everybody because he was going to kill himself that night. And the moderator was talking to him, and all the, saying all the right things and all, but the kid wasn't connecting with him. So I typed a message that I thought, Maybe he'd, he'd see that, and the moderator approved it, and then he read it, and he responded to me, and we kept going like that, the three of us, for about 20 minutes or so, and then the moderator stopped typing anything. He was just sitting there reading and approving ours so we could keep talking to each other. And about an hour or so later, he said he was really tired. He wasn't going to make any decisions tonight. He was going to think about what we've been talking about. And so the moderator came on and said, remember, you have to give us 24 hours notice if you decide you're going to, <laughs> you know. And then the next morning, uh, about midday, he came online and said that he'd done some serious thinking last night 
and he realized his cat was upset because the cat either slept in the living room or on his bed, did one or the other, but the cat stood in the doorway to the room staring at him all night long, never moved. He was still there the next morning when he got up, and the cat's still sitting there like this. And he goes, so I guess when you're saying that people need you and would miss you, it's really true because he realized that even his cat would be very upset if he was gone. And so we go like, that was great. They made me a moderator within a week. And about two months later, he'd had such a turnaround in his viewpoints and I was helping everybody else that they made him the youngest moderator that had ever been on the site at that point. What are some of the biggest challenges that you find in your advocacy work? There aren't any real challenges when people invite you to come talk to them. But it's when you're being sent somewhere because somebody else felt they needed it. Even if they're there, it doesn't help. If the people are in the room because they were forced to be there, that's the big challenge. Because you have to win them over to listen to you in the first place. I did a training at a sheriff's department in another parish and everybody was so receptive to everything. I was told afterwards they were there on their own time volunteering after their shifts and the room was packed. That was easy because they came to learn because they had a transgender officer was working with them and they realized they had a larger transgender community than they thought. And they wanted to know how to, how to deal with them properly because they didn't want to be the problem in their department. It's one of the things that people need to understand when you've got someone that's very different from you, there's a tendency to want to back away because we're afraid of the unknown. Okay. Well, how do you get to learn about that unknown if you just keep backing away from it? So the easiest way to find out what's going on in the LGBTQ community is to talk to somebody in the community. And most of us are willing to talk. <laughs> so it's the only way to, you have to open lines of communication. That's the only way to avoid just the perpetual fear, which then goes to hate, which then goes to violence. We break that cycle early just by learning. Hear more from Sally Michelle Jackson and Sarah Holtz's other guests in our episode entitled Peacemaking in the LGBTQ Community. It was our May 2019 episode. You can find it at peacetalksradio.com. Our September program in 2019 was produced by Suzanne Kreider and considered the increasing gap between the super rich and the middle class and poor in the United States and the resulting conflict from that economic gap. Suzanne talked with first sociologist Tina Wright on the reality of the economic class chasm. There is definitely a social class conflict in the United States and everywhere around the globe, actually. And I would say, you know, it comes down to who controls, who has control of resources, of systems, of structures. Um, They're able to make the rules and usually make the rules to benefit uh, themselves. Are there other things that individuals can do? I'm thinking like our listeners to help bring about solutions? Absolutely. So in my class, I've, you know, 
developed an applied learning portfolio where I'm teaching students advocacy skills. And so for every listener, advocacy is critical, and you can do it in many different ways. Also supporting what supports you and what supports the kind of system you want to see and divesting from those that don't, that's also critical. Really organizing, organize, organize, organize. If you're not part of some organization, uh, join one. Make sure you also follow other organizations and support the work they do because that's where we're going to see the transformation of social structures and systems that aren't benefiting everyone and that exasperate social inequality and class conflict. I know there's lots of intersectionality, Dr. Wright, with class, ethnicity, gender. I sat next to a guy on a plane a few weeks ago. I was reading a book called White Fragility. And he said, oh, I hate identity politics because (laughs) that really pushes us apart and creates conflict. What's your response? That is actually not what pushes us apart. (laughs) Those that control everything and have others, you know, basically surviving, trying to make ends meet uh, is what pushes us apart. Uh, Racism pushes us apart. Sexism pushes us apart. Homophobia pushes us apart. Um, I would say that, you know, everyone has an identity, but sometimes the mainstream, um, those that have been center don't actually see their identity. If anything, if I look at the politics now, a lot of identity, white identity is being used in the way of white nativism and that type of stuff. They just don't call it identity politics because they've had the benefit of being centered. When Dr. Wright was talking about groups needing to band together to challenge the dominance of the elite, she probably wasn't thinking about members of the 1% being engaged in that effort. There are some who are, though. Suzanne found one in Nick Hanauer, who makes no secret about having made a lot of money by starting many business ventures. But for some time, he's been one of the top critics of income inequality and modern economic policy. He set up a nonprofit organization called Civic Ventures to do something about it. And one thing is this weekly podcast, Pitchfork Economics, which he hosts. It's the middle class that makes the economy go, because if people don't buy stuff, then no one makes stuff. And if no one makes stuff, then there's no jobs. And so the true job creators in a market economy are middle class consumers. And when they thrive, that's the thing that drives business. So the most pro-business thing you can do as a matter of policy in a market economy is ensure that middle-class families are doing well. What would you tell our listeners they should be doing? Be involved, be involved. Like there's 10,000 things to be involved in. Like every single one of your listeners should be involved in a local uh, project whether it's raising the minimum wage or raising the overtime threshold or reducing gun violence or paid family leave or reforming our healthcare system. There's 10,000 things that need doing. Every single one of those projects needs help and volunteers. Be involved. Put your shoulder to the wheel. That's what democracy requires. That's successful business entrepreneur Nick Hanauer, who's become an advocate for shrinking the economic class gap. He hosts a podcast called Pitchfork Economics. Hear our full episode with him and Tina Wright by finding the September 2019 episode in our series at peacetalksradio.com. 
On some shows, we spotlight legendary peacemakers. Megan Kamrick looked at the lives of peacemaking Catholic icons Dorothy Day and Oscar Romero on one episode. We'll sample today a bit of her conversation with Kate Hennessy, granddaughter of Dorothy Day, who co-founded the Catholic Worker newspaper. There's this saying that people like to explain my grandmother's actions in that uh, she would afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And one of the ways that she would do this, she says, we cannot be wealthy ourselves. You know, it's incredibly disrespectful for one thing. And also people don't believe you. You're not really going to change people's lives if you're coming from a position of comfort and privilege. Now, in terms of how that connects to nonviolence, I mean, one of the reasons that war happens is this desire to control for resources. And so to simplify our lives makes it less imperative that we be a war economy. At the same time, people might be calling her a saint. Some people were calling her a communist. How did all of these labels fail to capture her complexity? She did not agree with um, communist policies and communist uh, beliefs. She did not feel that we should rely upon the state for anything. Really, I think the bottom line for her is this human connection. That That's what we are asked to do day in and day out, is to have this human connection. She believed in the long view, and what she meant by the long view was centuries. How do we work for true change and um, change that we probably will not see in our lifetime? She's a candidate for a canonization for sainthood. How would she react to that? Oh, she would have no interest, ultimately. She just said, do the work, do the work. <laughs> She's also famously uh, um, quoted as saying, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily. You know, what she was saying is the fact that people, by calling her a saint, it's a way of walking away from one's own responsibility. She would say, don't put me on a pedestal. I'm not doing anything that you can't do. You find out what you need to do, and you do it. You do the work. That was Kate Hennessy. Her book about her grandmother is The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. There are more than 200 Catholic worker houses in the U.S. and internationally, and the newspaper Dorothy Day co-founded is still being published. Dorothy Day died in November 1980. Earlier that year, Archbishop Oscar Romero was murdered in El Salvador. Now, he was canonized in 2018. Oscar Romero was a retiring and somewhat conservative priest, but he was galvanized in the last years of his life to speak out against the violence in El Salvador. Romero took up the cause of the poor, and finally called directly upon the military to stop the repression of campesinos and activists. In doing so, he incurred the wrath of the government, which was supported by the United States. Carrie Walters, our next guest, is a professor emeritus of philosophy and peace and justice studies at Gettysburg College. He wrote the book, St. Oscar Romero, Pastor, Prophet, Martyr. Now, near the end of this interview, we'll hear part of the homily Oscar Romero gave the day before he was killed and part of the same sermon as it was dramatized in the film Romero, starring Raul Julia in the title role. In the early years, he really wasn't concerned about um, social or economic institutions that were oppressive. It was only after he became archbishop, only after he began to make personal contact with people, that he began to reflect upon what it was in the society that was causing such suffering. If you read his sermons that were delivered every Sunday in the cathedral in uh, San Salvador, they almost always 
challenged not only the ruling junta, but also challenged the United States for supporting the juntas. And those sermons, the powers that be eventually decided, were probably the single most dangerous weapon that they had had wielded against them. It's pretty clear that he was assassinated on the orders of one of the death squads that had become so popular in El Salvador at the time, and almost certainly on the direct orders of Dobuzon, who, who was an army officer, but who also was deeply implicated in the death squads. Romero's assassination occurred right after this incredible sermon um, in which he basically said to the armed forces, and there were lots of them in the cathedral at the time listening to him, stop the oppression. Yo quisiera hacer un llamamiento de manera especial a los hombres del ejército. I'd like to make an appeal in a special way to the men in the army. Brothers, each one of you is one of us. We are the same people. The farmers and peasants that you kill are your own brothers and sisters. When you hear the words of a man telling you to kill, think instead in the words of God. Thou shalt not kill. No soldier is obliged to obey an order contrary to the law of God. In his name, and in the name of our tormented people who have suffered so much and whose laments cry out to heaven, I implore you, I beg you, I order you, stop the repression! Les suplico, les ruego, les ordeno en nombre de Dios. We heard a bit of film actor Raul Julia's interpretation of the sermon that Oscar Romero gave the day before he was assassinated in El Salvador. Much more on Romero's story and Dorothy Day's story in our June 2019 program. You can find it at peacetalksradio.com. We're going to close today's highlights package from our Peace Talks Radio series 2019 programs with part of an episode that Sarah Holtz produced from talking to historians about how we might better learn from history peacemaking lessons that we can apply to reduce conflict today. One interview she did was with Dr. Jeffrey Derensborg, a tribal council person for the Atakapa Ishak Nation, who says the U.S. has a long history of erasing indigenous narratives that would teach us a lot if preserved and taught in schools. What does it mean to decolonize history? It means to tell it from the point of view of people other than powerful white people. So it means that people who are lionized as heroes are not heroes to us. Or things that are thought of as important events might not be that important to us. Um, or they might be important to us in a different way. Um, so. Around here, we always have a relationship with history. There's a lot of people who come here, have historical tours, and oftentimes the sort of tourist history leaves out important aspects. So uh, our World War II Museum here in town, is a, you know, there's a campaign, an advertising campaign that's called the Arsenal of Democracy about um, the building of you know, 
this uh, war effort. And I mean, my native grandfather fought in World War II, uh, but arsenal to democracy it was not, because when he came back to Louisiana, he could not legally vote. So there was no democracy for him. He had the same voting rights here as he would have had in Nazi Germany. So things like that is what it means to decolonize. It means to say, like, look, this is not the only way to think about this. And so if we understand them in the typical way, like I was taught in history class growing up, we're going to understand them from a certain set of priorities and a certain set of values that I do not hold and that I think many other people should not hold as well. Could you tell us about your experiences teaching history in Louisiana schools? I did teach history here um, in high school. The thing about history is that so often it does not include very much from the point of view of either native people or enslaved people or from people of color in general and the general narrative of American history. And then for some of us in the zine, especially those of us who are Louisiana Creole, I always like to put in elements of people who are both African and native, uh, which I am. Uh, And so I think that that's an untold story. And it's kind of remarkable when we think of the things that we teach students about, say, a westward expansion and so-called pioneers, people who went into places that were already very well populated and destroyed uh, ways of life and trying to understand American history from the Native point of view means that you kind of have to teach some things that are not necessarily going to be on the state-mandated exams. Um, and that's always a tension because the, the students need to pass those exams. And at the same time, there's also a commitment one has to have to the truth at some point where one has to say, you know, there are things about this that are not being told that you need to think about that, you know, about, for example, think of how influential the era of Reconstruction is in the South and the formation of Jim Crow and everything and in Louisiana history in high school begins at 1849 and skips the Civil War. So that seems very deliberate attempt to avoid discussion of some of the uglier aspects of American history that passed through this place. And I think that it's important that the people in this country know a broader story about what happened, a story that encompasses more types of people of every sort. And that helps them not only get a better picture of the past, but also a better picture of current situations that people endure now. That's just a few minutes from our full hour-long episode called Learning Lessons from History to Make Peace Today. You can look for it at peacetalksradio.com. It was our August 2019 episode. And note, too, that you can also go to our website, peacetalksradio.com, and make another donation to our independent nonprofit organization that produces this show. Thanks to our great correspondents, Suzanne Kreider, Megan Kamrick, and Sarah Holtz, our executive director, Nola Daves-Moses, and Ali Adelman, who composed and performs our theme music. For all of them, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.